For those of you that are visitors, um, I think, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm, I'm, I'm an immigrant, so I'm not completely adept to all the American culture kinds of things. They say that there are three things that you shouldn't talk about at the dinner table, right? One is sex. The second is, uh, uh, what, money? Is that right, money? Religion, religion, okay. So you could talk about money? Really? Oh, okay. Is it not sex? You could talk about sex? See, here's the problem with being a diverse church, right? Because some of you go, we talk about all that stuff. Well, anyway, my understanding was there's certain things you don't talk about. And one of the things that you don't talk about is politics, though, right? Is that, is that, is that cross-cultural? We don't talk about politics? Okay, for most of us. Well, in our church, we talk about all of the above, right? So we're going to talk about politics today. And here's what I mean by that. We are in the midst of a sermon series uh, through a book called Unchristian. And we're essentially hitting the chapters through this book. And this book was essentially written from a demographic study of how our culture perceives Christianity. And, uh, and we've been talking about the last two weeks. So two weeks ago we talked about how Christians are perceived as being judgmental. We all agree that that's true. We also talked about how it is that we could go about, I guess, dealing with that perception. Last Sunday, I yelled at you guys, basically. (laughs) So all I did, I just yelled if you were here, uh, which is not normal. I don't yell that much, but I yelled last Sunday. And we talked about how we're sheltered. We're perceived as being sheltered. And today, we're addressing this topic that we are perceived as being too political. Too political. That Christianity and politics has sort of become infused. And there's a blurring of lines. Let's go ahead and look at our scripture passage for today, and then, and then I'll make some more, more comments. Uh, Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, uh, verse 13 and on. Might be a passage that's familiar to you, but if I do my job well today, you'll walk out here going, I had no idea that's what that passage meant or talked about. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and read this passage. Uh, one real quick thing, you guys. I understand that the topic of politics is not a, you know, it's not something that everybody in here is like all about, you know. And so I'm, I'm, I'm nervous because I don't want to lose many of you who are sitting there going, I don't like politics. I don't talk about politics. I could care less about politics. And so the angle that I'm going to come at from this is not whether you care or not about politics, but but in the culture that we live in, in which it's very political, in every sense of the word, uh, we need to be Christians who are engaged and informed about how to engage our culture about this issue of politics, okay? Are you following so far? Okay? So I don't care if you're sitting there going, oh, politics. Like, and, and or, vice versa, some of you guys are going, I love this stuff. I talk about it all the time. Like, I can't get enough of it. If I do my job well, all of you guys will be included in the conversation. Okay, so Mark chapter 12, verse 13. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Now, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Uh, should we pay Or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, 
Whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. You know what they're asking him? They're asking Jesus, what are, you, what, what are your politics, Jesus? They're asking Jesus, Jesus, what are, what's your political persuasion? Let me take it even further. What, 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 how do you feel about the relationship between state and church? Uh, what, what political party do you belong to? What political party are you in favor of? What political agendas are important to you? That's what they're asking him. To which you're going, come on. No, really. That's what they're asking him. We're going to go ahead and see. That's the context in which this conversation takes place. And Jesus does something amazing. I, I, I'm going to come back to this. You know when you ask, normally ask politicians a question, what do they do? What do they do? They're great at evading the question, right? Like they'll give you an answer and you're frustrated because you're sitting there going, answer the stupid question. Just answer the question. And you get frustrated, you roll your eyes, or you go, you know what? The listeners to Jesus aren't frustrated. They're not rolling their eyes. The Bible says what? They're what? They're, they're amazed at his answer. Why? We're talking about politics today. And I think here's the critical question, you guys, that we need to wrestle with. Uh, the question is not should Christians be involved in politics or political engagement because the answer to that is simple. The answer is yes. Here's what I mean. Politics is one of the ways in which we as Christians could sort of influence our culture and be engaged in culture. And I don't mean just by running for office and so forth, but think about it. If you and I are called to be kingdom people, influencing and involved in every sphere of our society and our life, politics or politics or political engagement is certainly one of the ways in which you need to be engaged. Okay? So it is not an excuse for a Christian to go, who's running for office again this year? Like, you should at least know who's running. And furthermore, you should know what their policies are and what they stand for. Why? Because the culture out there, have you paid attention to what's going on? Millions and millions of people are this year going, we care about who gets elected. So if you're going to be a, a Christian that's going to intellectually and thoughtfully engage culture, you need, but, but here's the question is, it's not should we, the question is how should we be engaged? That's the question. Because it's not enough for Christians to be engaged in politics in such a way that we win elections and win votes. You could win elections and win votes and you could lose your soul in the process. Let me reframe the question, shall I? The question is not whose side is God on. The question is what? Are we on God's side? That's the question. The reason why we're perceived as being too political is because the message that, unfortunately, certain segments of Christian community have sent is, whose side is God on? And you got the Democrats going, God is on our side. you got the Republicans going, God is on our side. you got the Independents going, God is on our side. And the Bible clearly says, wrong question, right question, are we on God's side? Okay, tracking so far? See, have I lost anyone so far? No? Okay, okay. You know what? You have freedom today to go, I don't understand that. Like, say it. I don't understand that. Can you repeat that, okay? Okay. <laughs> That's the key question that we need to wrestle with. Now, here's the thing, you guys. Perception. Let's deal with perception. The perception is, unfortunately, the mic has been held to an extreme fringe of the Christian community. That's the loudest. And so the perception out there in terms of politics is that, you guys know, Christians are right-wing, driven by their political agendas, types of people. 
which is not true. It's not true at all. There are many of you sitting here who will vote for so-and-so and so-and-so. There are many of you here who will for a wide variety of people for different reasons, right? But how do we change that perception? How do we change that perception? How do we, let me put it this way, how do we as Christians be politically engaged in such a way that through that, through that vehicle, we would influence our culture in such a way? Listen, it's not just about who you vote for, how you vote. It's not just about who wins. The culture is asking us and saying, how are you as a Christian engaging the entire thing? Let me, in other words, how do you talk to somebody who disagrees with you politically? It's the message we're sending. If you disagree with me politically, I exclude you. I marginalize you. If you disagree with me politically, we say stupid things like, how can you be a Christian and vote for so-and-so? That's stupid. The question is, how do we intellectually, thoughtfully engage this issue in such a way that regardless of whether we disagree, uh, agree, we engage people in a way that they experience grace and truth and love? Because it's just as important how you do it and just doing it. Does that make sense? Yes? Okay. So we're going we're gonna to kind of take this passage apart, and let's see what Jesus does, okay? Let's see what Jesus does. Because Jesus, I think, gives a blueprint for how Christians ought to live, engage in their culture politically. For those of you who don't care a rip about politics, I assure you, you will actually be interested in this next portion at least, okay? All right, so. This passage, this passage, this section takes place in all four Gospels. And here's the context. It all takes place in a series of debates that Jesus is having with his opponents, okay? And here's another important dynamic you need to understand about this passage uh, about taxes to Caesar. This comes right after Jesus cleansing the temple. Jesus cleansing the temple. In every passage in the Gospels, it comes right after cleansing the temple. Jesus engaged in debates and taxes to Caesar question. Okay. Who asks the question? That's an important part of this passage. Who asks the question? Do you notice? It's the Pharisees and the Herodians. And you could not have gotten two different people politically in the same room at that time. Theologically, there were two groups of people that disagreed. There were the Pharisees who believed in the resurrection of the kingdom. And there were the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. Sadducees. Anyway. Um, sad, yeah, I know, I know. You guys are so dead today. I got a, ah, something, right? They were sad. They were, that's why they were sad, you see, right? They didn't believe in the resurrection. They were sad, you see. Anyway, um, so, so here, are, here are the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, here's the political climate of the time. Here's the political climate of the time that's important. The political climate of the time is one in which the Jews who are living in Palestine are captives in their own land. The people that are over them is the Roman government. Okay? People that are Roman government. Now, the Jews were sort of separated into two groups. There were Jews who resented the Roman government and hated it and resisted, so on and so forth. And then there were other Jews, actually, who willingly went along and benefited from them. One group was tax collectors. That's why we know, right? Tax collectors went, away, went along with the Roman government, sort of worked for them, kind of, kind of betrayed their own countrymen and benefited from it. The other group were Herodians, who sort of held political power as a result of the Romans being government. So they had kind of a stake in that. That's one group. Now, the Pharisees were at the other end of the extreme. They hated the Roman government for a number of reasons. They hated the fact that they were sort of, you know, held, held as captives. They hated the fact that there was huge taxes. But the major reason why the, uh, the Pharisees could not stand the Roman government was because of this reason. Religious. They felt and believed that the only one that you could give your entire devotion and allegiance to was God. And yet the Roman government came along and said, you need to give your allegiance and everything that you have to who? Caesar. 
the emperor, the king. That's why they looked upon this as, as, as a sort of an issue of not only their national identity, but it was treason. Take that into consideration. Now the context. You ready? The context. So the people come to Jesus, and what is their question? Their question is referring to tax to Caesar. Now, here's the important thing you have to understand. This wasn't just a tax in general, okay? This wasn't just a tax. There were general taxes on goods, so on and so forth. But there was also a thing called the head tax. Everybody say head tax with me. Head tax, okay? And head tax was levied on subjected people, not Roman citizens. So if you're a Roman citizen, you didn't have to pay the head tax. But if you were subjected people, i.e. the Jews, you have to pay this head tax. Now, what did the head tax symbolize? Because the head tax was one denarius, which is tiny, tiny amount. So it's not like they taxed people to get something. It was a symbol. You know what it was a symbol? It was a symbol of saying, by me paying this tax, it is a privilege for me to be under the subject of Caesar. That's what this tax was. By saying it, by paying it, they were essentially articulating, I am glad to be subject of Caesar. When that tax was first levied, let me get close to you here, okay? When the tax was first levied, here's what happened. There was an insurrection, armed revolt, okay? I get all this stuff by, uh, by reading N.T. Wright. Those of you that N.T. Wright's great at this stuff. There's, there was an armed revolt when the tax was levied. It was led by a guy named Judas the Galilean, okay? Judas the Galilean. Now check this out. When Judas the Galilean uh, led this armed revolt because the text was first levied, he did three things. First thing he did was he went around and told people, don't pay the head tax. Don't pay the head tax. If you're a true Jew, you will not pay the head tax. Second thing he did was he went into the temple and he cleaned it out. He took an army of Jews and went into the temple, drove out all the foreigners, drove out all the Gentiles. And then the third thing he did was he went around talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is going to come in their limited understanding, and we're going to get rid of oppression. We're going to get rid of injustice. What happens? The Roman army comes, and he gets caught, executed. End of revolt. It's 25 years later, and there's another revolutionary who's on the scene. Jesus. And he's going around talking about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God has come. Secondly, he has just gone and cleansed the temple and driven out the Gentiles. Are you checking? Okay. So now they come to him and what's their question? Their question is what? What do you think about this tax? Do you know what they're thinking? Their question literally is, when are you going to take up this armed revolt? Just like Judas 25 years ago. They're asking, are you the kind of political revolutionary we've been waiting for? Are you going to do this? Are you going to take charge? Jesus, are you that? And what does Jesus do? Now, before we get to what Jesus does, think of the dilemma that he's in, okay? This isn't just a trap to get Jesus unpopular, you know? Some of us understood this passage as, you know, they're asking the question because they just want Jesus to be unpopular with one group. If he says, yes, pay the tax, he'll be sort of unpopular with the Jews because they'll be like, oh, see, he's not really for us. But if he says, no, don't pay the tax, then he'll upset the Romans and they'll kind of be, you know, he'll be unpopular with the Romans. That's not what's going on here. If he says, no, don't pay the tax, it's an armed revolt and he's going to get crushed. But there's a bigger dilemma. If he says, yes, pay the tax, listen carefully. 
If he says, yes, pay the tax, here's the dilemma that Jesus is in. He's been talking about the kingdom of God, kingdom of God, kingdom of God. And here's the thing. We have to understand. When some of us hear about the kingdom of God, when some of us hear about the kingdom of God, some of us in the West think a kingdom of God is kingdom of heaven. He brings about inner peace. And I have this warm, fuzzy relationship with Jesus. And I get to go to heaven. That's not what Jesus was talking about. No, it's what his listeners understood. When Jesus went around talking about the kingdom of God, his listeners, that's why they were drawn to him, thought he's talking about what we see in the Old Testament. That is, the kingdom of God is going to come with this king, and he's going to do real things like take care of real injustice, real oppression, real poverty, real hunger. This king is going to come, and he's going to kick out the Romans and the royal person of Roman government, and he's going to usher in this kingdom that's going to revolutionize everything. That's what they heard. So if Jesus comes along, listen, and says, no. Pay the tax. His listeners aren't sitting there going, oh, okay. They're sitting there going, what about all the message about the kingdom? What all the stuff about you getting rid of the injustice and oppression? What about, what about all that stuff? What happened to that, Jesus? This guy's a sham. I don't need to listen to him. You see the dilemma he's in? Now, here's the thing. So he asks a question on one hand. He says, yes, pay the tax. He loses everybody whose understanding of kingdom is limited. If he says, don't pay the tax, there come the Romans, there come the Romans. We saw this happen 25 years ago. We got to crush it. What does Jesus do? Yeah, I can sense that I'm, I'm about to lose some of you. So I got to hurry up and get Okay, So what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't do what a typical politician does. Jesus gives him an answer. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's, to which we go, what the heck are you talking about? You know what? Good news. That's what they thought too. They're like, what the heck are you talking about? But Jesus is ambiguous here deliberately. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And in his answer, you guys, is a revolutionary, revolutionary insight that teaches us 2,000 years later how as Christians we can engage our world politically and culturally in his answer. In his answer right here, in that answer, he gives us, he gives us a balanced answer, a nuanced answer, maybe even a paradoxical answer. And in this, he says, if you are a Christian, politically engaging your culture, you have to avoid three things. Three things. First, you got to avoid being politically simple. Second, you gotta, you got to refuse to be apolitical. Me- meaning, I don't want anything to do with politics. That's like for those weird Christians. That's like for those, those people who are like, that's, just, that's unholy. That's politics. Ah, And then he says, most of all, be very careful of being too political. All right? So, first, he says, don't be simple politically. What do I mean? Listen to what he says. They they, they ask the question twice to Jesus, right? They say, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we or shouldn't we? And you know what they're essentially asking him? They're asking him, Jesus, give us a simple, clear answer. Yes or no? Try again. Yes or no? Which side? What issue? What party? Give us a simple answer. What does Jesus do? He refuses. He refuses. He doesn't say no. He doesn't say sure. He refuses to answer the simple question. Now, here's the thing. If you know Jesus, Jesus is never, ever, you know, complex. and What does it mean to follow you? He's very simple. He's very clear, right? Obey now unconditionally. He's very clear. He's not. But here they say, Jesus, tell us, yes or no? Which party? What engagement? And Jesus goes, I'm not going to do that. 
give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. When he's asked a question about our relationship, you guys, to the state, to the government, when he's asked a question about our relationship politically, Jesus doesn't give a very simplistic answer. Now, here's the insight in that. You ready? Don't do to Jesus what he wouldn't do to himself. What do I mean? We do to Jesus what he wouldn't do to himself when we walk around saying, if you're a Christian, he's for that party, Jesus is. That issue, that's Jesus' issue. That agenda, that's Jesus' agenda. If you and I walk around telling other people, Christians, that's what Jesus stands for, that's what he would do, he's saying, why are you doing something that I would never do myself? Part of the reason why we're perceived as being too political is because we have given very politically simplistic answers. And Jesus says, that's not me. That's not me. Don't do to Jesus what he wouldn't do for himself. I'm appalled at how Christians could say stuff like, how could a Christian with a brain in his head vote for so-and-so? I'm appalled. I'm appalled when Christians go, how can a Bible-believing, a genuine, do you really love Jesus? Untethic Christian think that that issue is not Jesus' issue. Why are you doing to Jesus what he wouldn't do to himself? Are we guilty of this? Well, you tell me. Unfortunately, these quotes are taken from one set of group. I was looking for quotes from the other set of group. But suffice to say that both sides, all sides do this politically. A famous Christian leader said, It is the responsibility of every political conservative, every evangelical Christian, every pro-life Catholic, every traditional Jew, every Reagan Democrat, and everyone in between to get serious about re-electing President Bush. Why are you doing to Jesus what he wouldn't do to himself? Another quote. I think so-and-so is going to win in a walk. I really believe, I'm hearing from the Lord, it's going to be a blowout election in 2004. The Lord has just blessed him. It doesn't make any difference what he does, good or bad. Why are you doing to Jesus what he wouldn't do to himself? You following? But you know what, guys? Don't we do the same? Don't we do the same? See, some of you guys think environmental issues is the fake crisis facing our nation, right? Our world. Environmental. Everybody, you know, say hybrid cars and blah, blah, green. Well, if, if that's you and you think that the environmental issue is the greatest challenge facing our world today, in 2004, if you were consistent, you would have voted for Ralph Nader, right? But then you have, I'm sorry, I, I don't want to like talk politics, but just an example. But then brothers and sisters in the African-American community would go, how the heck can you say that national park security or national park renovation or keeping of national park is a more important issue than racial justice? And then you got some other, amen, and then you got some other folks, right? I'm sorry, I love you, sister, but that's what we're trying to avoid right there. (laughs) Amen, that's what I'm doing, you know. But I know what you were saying. I know what you were saying. That's what, and then you've got what? Large segments of Christian community that says what? How can you say that those things, how can you say that racial justice is important? What about the protection of babies? What about the protection of marriage? And, go, and go, we go on and on and on. And Jesus says, when you say you must do such and such, he's saying you're confusing God and Caesar. 
Don't do to Jesus what he wouldn't do to himself. It says don't be politically simplistic. Okay, is that, was that too much? Is that too much so far? Are, are you with me? Non-political people, if you're, if you're kind of hanging in there, can you kind of clap? Can it? <laughs> look, look, here's what this means. Okay, very simply, this means... Michael, I think I've lost him. This means, this means, this means that as we face this election, the way that we represent Christ to this world is that we refuse to do to Jesus what he wouldn't do to himself, and we engage in conversation with people we disagree with. We refuse to make drastic, you know, remarks like, how can you be a Christian and vote for such and such? Christians could vote all over the spectrum and still honor Jesus. Don't do to Jesus what he wouldn't do to himself. Don't be politically simplistic. How was that, you guys? That wasn't so bad? Okay. If you're heading down a path, honestly, and you go, such, such party is God's party. Such, such agenda is God's agenda. You're heading down a path of doing what Jesus would never do. You tracking? Secondly, he says, don't be apolitical. Don't be somebody that's like politics. During Jesus' day, there were two groups of people. One group was the Essenes. Everybody heard, anybody heard of the Essenes? The Essenes? You might have heard of the Essenes if you heard of Dead Sea Scrolls. Dead Sea Scrolls were these remarkable documents that were discovered, right? That gave a glimpse into the life of the early Jews. Well, they were found in the desert, way out yonder. Why? Because the Essenes who wrote them lived way out yonder in the desert. Here's what the Essenes said. Essenes said, politically, I'm not going to pay taxes. Why? I don't want to be involved. I don't want to be engaged. That's unholy. That's unspiritual. That's for politicians. That's for secular people. That's for Christians who've got nothing to do. I'm just going to be over here, Bible-believing, praying, quiet time, Jesus. No, not Bible, quiet time, Christian, not quiet time, Jesus, okay? So he is basically, the Essenes were basically saying, we don't want to be involved at all. The way that we're going to be involved is to be uninvolved and way over out here. What does Jesus say to them? He says, give me a denarius. Takes a denarius, right? Takes a denarius. By the way, I know that this is information overload for you guys today, so hang in there, okay? He takes a denarius, and he says to people, whose image is on it? And then he says, whose inscription? And here's what that denarius would have said at the time. The image that's on it was of Tiberius Caesar. And the inscription on it was Tiberius Caesar, son of Augustus. In other words, Jesus is holding a silver coin that says, King, son of God. King, son of God. Total, total claim to allegiance. Total claim to allegiance. And then Jesus says, okay, here, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And the key to understanding this, follow, this is a little intricate here. Key to understanding that what Jesus is saying here is, is give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And the key question though is Jesus is saying, whose image is on it? Because whoever's image is on it, you give to Caesar. Now, here's the thing. When Jesus said whose image is on it, the Greek word there is icon. Okay, from which we word icon, okay? And he's saying this, he's saying, whatever has uh, Caesar's image on it, give it to him. That coin, it is his image on it, give it to him. And literally, it was his. All the coins of that time, money, was minted out of his treasury. So literally, all the money belonged to Caesar. So he's saying, his image is on it, give it to him. But, make sure you give him only that has his image on it. Meaning, give to God what has his image on it, and that's you. Let me say that once more. <laughs> Ooh, okay. 
That is Alicia Connect. Are you following today? See, see what he's saying? I mean, you guys, this could be a sermon of sermons, right? I mean, I can go off and talk about identity, all that other stuff. But let's stick for politics for this morning, okay? He says, give to Caesar because there's his image on it. But he looks around and he says, what is God's image? What is God's image? What is God's image? And he says, God's image is on you. So make sure you give to God what is his image, which is you. Now, what the heck was he talking about? You got to look at what he meant when he said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. In the Greek, he changes the language from the question. In other words, when the questioners asked, should we give to Caesar taxes? They were essentially using a Greek word that said, present something as a gift to somebody. But then Jesus does this little trickery thing that Jesus always does. And then he changes the language. And in the King James Version, it actually comes out better. Anybody King James Version? He says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Render to God what is God's. What does render mean? Render literally means give back to the person what they deserve. So check this out. He's saying, it's got Caesar's image on it, right? So give it to him. It's his. And then he says, God's image is on you. God's image is on you. So you give God your ultimate allegiance. Now here's the conflict. This was revolutionary. Up until that time, all the governments were totalitarian. All the, in other words, all the governments basically held posture that said we are chosen by gods. They frankly claimed that they were gods. And they said we, we want our people to, to, to commit total allegiance to us. You can't question us. You can't call us out. You can't have us sit in judgment. You are totally subjected to us. Even if it involves coercion, even if it involves oppression, even if it involves injustice, even if it involves what we do. Okay? And Jesus is simply saying, give to God what is God's. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Well, what does a tyrant deserve? His money. But Jesus is slyly saying, but doesn't that tyrant who leads totalitarian government, doesn't he also deserve some resistance as well? God's image is on you. Doesn't that tyrant deserve some resistance on someone who bears God's image when he is a man of injustice, when he is a man of oppression, when he is a man of coercion? This is the birthplace, I personally think, of the theology behind civil disobedience as political engagement. And nobody exemplified this better than Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Because you know what Jesus was saying here? He's saying God's image is on you. You know what that means? That means that when you live in a state or government that enforces unjust laws and says, you will obey, total, you can't question us. Jesus says, the reason why you need to resist is because God's image is on you and your ultimate allegiance belongs to God. You tracking? You tracking? Because as a follower of Christ, when you are in a government of unjust laws, of oppression and injustice, because God's image is on you, you resist, you stand up, and you do civil disobedience. In other words, when unjust laws of the state government come against God's laws, God says God's image is on you, you obey God's law. Martin Luther King Jr. You know, his, his letter from the Birmingham, I mean, it's a sermon in itself, right? I could just read it and read it and read it. But listen to what he says. Listen, you express, uh, by the way, you got to know the context, right? Context. Civil disobedience. He's in jail because he's protesting segregation in the South. And do you know who protested the loudest? Or religious leaders. More specifically, white Christian ministers. You know what they said? They said, 
How dare you protest? How dare you do civil disobedience? Obey the laws of the government. Why are you doing that? And Dr. King's response comes right out of, give Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. You express a great deal of anxiety over our willingness to break laws. This is certainly a legitimate concern since we do so diligently urge people to obey the Supreme Court's decision of 1954 outlawing segregation in the public schools. At first glance, it may seem rather paradoxical for us consciously to break laws. One may ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer lies in the fact that there are two types of laws, just and unjust. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. I will be the first to advocate obeying just laws. One is not only a legal, but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. Of course, there's nothing new about this kind of civil disobedience. It was evident sublimely in the refusal of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to go obey the laws, to, to obey the laws of Nebuchadnezzar on the ground that a higher moral law was at stake. It was practiced superbly by the early Christians who were willing to face hungry lions and excruciating pain of chopping blocks rather than submit to certain unjust laws of the Roman Empire. To a degree, academic freedom is reality today because Socrates practiced civil disobedience. In our own nation, the Boston Tea Party represented a massive act of civil disobedience. And we should never forget that everything Adolf Hitler did in Germany was quote-unquote legal and everything that Hungarian freedom fighters did in Hungary was illegal. It was illegal to aid and comfort a Jew in Hitler's Germany. Even so, I am sure that had I lived in Germany at the time, I would have aided and comforted my Jewish brothers. If today I lived in a communist country where certain principles dear to the Christian faith are suppressed, I would openly advocate disobeying that country's anti-religious laws. You know what Jesus is saying? God's image is on you, Christian. You know what that means? That means when you are part of a system, an unjust government, if you will, where they're enforcing unjust laws, it is your duty, responsibility, and right as a follower of Christ to stand up and speak for those who don't have a voice. So are you? Are you speaking up for those who do not have a voice in our society? But I'm not, I'm not engaged in politics. It doesn't matter. This is an issue about engaging politics. But I'm not, you know, really adept to political science. It doesn't matter. I'm not. I'm an idiot when it comes to politics. Trust me, okay? I just watch a lot of TV. That's what I do, okay? A lot of TV. <laughs> Did I just say that out loud, Michael? I, maybe I should specify. I watch a lot of news. I watch a lot of news, okay? Let me just give you one example. Oh, well, I'm going to, hot topic, ready, hot topic. Here, here it is, ready? Here's the topic. When you, when you get ready to vote and when you get ready to see the candidates, immigration law, immigration laws are huge, right? Just a question out there. Ask yourself the history of our country and how they've treated immigrants. And ask the question, are the, jaws, are the laws of our nation just or unjust to the immigrants among us? Are you speaking up as a follower of Jesus? But I'm not a politician. Jesus wasn't either. He's saying, if you are apolitical and not involved at all, you are not following the way of your master. Okay, was that too much? Michael says, give me more, give me more. Okay, I don't have any more on that, Michael. I'm done with that point, I think, yeah. I think I'm done with that point. 
Oh, ah, there's, there's one really good one. Oh, yeah, there's one really good one. Okay, okay. <laughs> you guys, be very careful. Oh, man. See, I knew I'm going to step on something. Be very careful of any government, any political leaders that says God and us, we're the same. God and us, we speak his voice. So that's the way of Caesar. Not of Jesus. To which all of you go, wait, who's saying that? The Republicans? The Democrats? It doesn't matter. Don't go there. Why are you doing that? You know, I, I read minds. You know, I, I'm a mind reader. So I, okay. And then he says, you ready? And then he says, so avoid being politically simple, being apolitical. And then he says, for some of us, avoid being too political. Avoid being too political. Oh, this is good. This is a good one. As I said, there were two groups, right, in Jesus' day of people who refused to pay taxes. One were the Essenes, and they're sort of the apolitical people. The other group that refused to pay taxes were the people that were too political. And they were the, does anybody know? They were called the zealots. See, if I was around during Jesus' day, I think I would have been a zealot. Yeah. Here's what the zealots said. They went around, they said, we will not pay taxes. Matter of fact, here's what they said. They said, we will take power. And we will take power in God's name. And we will take power in God's name. And we will rule in God's name. Fight the system. Fight the injustice. Political means is the way which we're going to do it. That was the zealots. And Jesus says what? Stop it. Well, he didn't literally say that. But he said, you know what? Just as I'm against you saying I'm going to be apolitical, why should I be involved? Jesus saying, for those of you, oh, listen, I know that this is a small minority, but those of you that are thinking political engagement is the way, the primary way in which we are going to change this culture and society, Jesus says you are being short-sighted. Jesus says, if you are from a political persuasion that says, if we could just elect the right president, our country will be much better off. Jesus is going, no, 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 no. Are you following? And Jesus furthermore comes along and says, just like the zealous, look, if your primary way in which you're going to make this country Christian is by legislating laws and doing so on and so forth, Jesus says, you have no idea of the revolution of the kind of kingdom that I'm bringing about. You have no idea, no idea, no idea. Furthermore, he says this, if you think that, that being political engagement and all that stuff is the primary way in which we can influence our culture, you will inevitably go, that party, that agenda, those people. You tracking? Can we just be honest? Isn't the problem for many of us in America is that we've relied on political process and engagement as the primary way? that we think our culture is going to change. I'm going to pick on both people, okay? The left says, we bring change, big government, social reform to solve social ills. I'm generalizing, so please don't come up and go. You mischaracterized us. I'm generalizing. The right over here says, the way we change our culture is to make sure we legislate moral laws, small government, big business. Jesus comes along and says what? No political party will solve the social ills of our society because it's going to require the kingdom of God. Do you know why the kingdom of God is our only hope? Because social ills is not just about societal issues. It's about individual issues. 
Societal issues not vice versa, just about individualism, as long as you get your moral bearings right, as long as you do what you need to do, so on and so forth, that societal ills will be solved by the power of the kingdom, which comes with the gospel that says he brings about healing both individually and socially, holistically. That's how change and transformation will come. So for those of us who've erred inside of going, you know, if we stop having gay marriage, if we could just deal with the whole issue of, uh, 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 of abortion, you know, our society will be better. Jesus is saying you're being short-sighted. Kingdom of God is bigger than that. At the same time, if you go, if we just solve the social ills, government programs and helping the poor, so on and so forth, Jesus says you're being short-sighted. There's an individual redemptive transformation that has happened in the heart of that. Pro- you see, balance, balance, balance. Now, you know what's so cool? What's so cool about this whole thing is that Jesus comes along and he doesn't just say, hey, so don't be apolitical. Hey, don't be too political. Jesus comes along and says, guess what? He says, my solution? He says, I've got a revolution that's going to revolutionize revolutions. (laughs) He says, I've got a plan for a revolt that's going to revolt against all revolts. He says, I'm going to come along and I'm going to give you a picture of what our culture and society ought to look like that isn't too dependent on politics or not dependent. You know how he does it? This is so cool. This is so cool. He comes along and he says what? And the question, he says, uh, who is a denarius? Follow along here. Who is a denarius? Somebody gives him a denarius. And he holds it up and he says, King, son of God. The gospel writer Mark loves irony, right? And he's doing an irony right here. He's saying there's two people on stage, people. Two people on stage. Ready? Two people claiming to be king. Two people claiming the son of God. You have Tiberius Caesar who owns all the money in the world. And then you have Jesus who says, somebody got a quarter. Watch this. Jesus is saying, the way that we're going to influence our culture, you can't just change the players inside the kingdom of man. Jesus isn't coming along and saying, I'm going to be a better king. I'll be a better Caesar. Watch this. He's saying, my kingdom will be so revolutionary, so upside down, so countercultural that it's not going to make any sense in the world. How does it make sense that this king who says, I am the king of the world, says, anybody got a quarter? Do you know why that's important? Because political process, we've looked at revolution after revolution by saying, if we had the right leader, they will come. And Jesus says, you don't understand. Every right leader that comes along is driven by the very same values that the world looks after. Success, power, significance, and wealth. And all you're doing is just rearranging the furniture. The thing that's going to bring about true and genuine transformation in this world is if there's a king, there's a revolutionary that comes that is so radically different that he's going to change it from the inside out, upside down, completely and totally. And he's saying, I want to show you what that's like. You ready? I don't have a penny to my name. I can just see the look on your face going, I'm lost. I'm lost. Do you know how we bring about change transformation? 
It's not by saying, elect the next better Caesar, elect the next government leader, or I will, because when we get into that, we get stuck in the same system of pursuing power, significance, wealth, status. The only way that we can be genuinely transformed, you guys, is by seeing, worshiping, committing our life to this king who says, I win by losing. I came to wealth by giving everything away. I came to power by being a servant to the least of these. And he says, anybody that follows me into this kingdom, your entire worldview is changed. That means that you pursue power and see it the same way that your master did. That is, I have power, I'm going to lay it down. Every revolution in the kingdom of man, people say, I want the power. We've been oppressed, we've been marginalized. But once they get the power, what do they do? They then oppress, they then marginalize, they then exclude people. They were their opponents. And Jesus says, true transformation, you take power, you lay it down. Significance. Every kingdom within the kingdom of man, there's not a lot of change. Why? Because every single person that pursues this in the kingdom says, ultimately at the end of the day, this is where I find significance. This is where I find worth. And Jesus says, do you realize that you have a savior who became completely and totally insignificant on the cross? So much so that his father turned his face away. You follow a servant. Inside the kingdom of man, people hoard wealth because it's a source of power and manipulation. Jesus says, I was the richest, wealthiest person in the world, but I laid it all down so that you can have the wealth of God. And it is when and only when, you guys, we embrace and follow this king with the radically revolutionary politics of the kingdom of God who comes along and says, the only way that our society will experience transformation, true transformation, is not just changing the players, rearranging the furniture, but it's when every single child of God, follower of Jesus, realizes I have a role in this and millions of Christ followers go out into our society, into our culture with a radically different value system towards power, towards significance, towards money and towards status are you tracking Jesus comes along and says let me show you that I'm just not a better Caesar the next guy that's going to come and sort of shift he says I've given my all I will be stripped naked and be pierced and crucified and I will be excluded and rejected by the heavenly father so that we would have the power to live the life that he lived. Look, I come back to this every week. You guys look at that and go, there's no way we can do that. There's no way that people in America, there's no way people in America will embrace that kind of a radical kingdom and live radically different lives following their Savior and Lord. And Jesus says, the only way that you're going to get power to do that is if you realize, I did it for you on your behalf. But how do we, how do, how do, how do we, how do we like let go of power? How do we let go of power when we get to have an influence? Jesus says, the only way you can let go of the power is recognizing that I ultimately let go of the ultimate power for you and for me. But what about wealth? We need to hoard wealth because it's money and manipulation and power. And Jesus says, the only way that you will have a kingdom perspective towards money and not hoarding it for yourself, kingdom, I'm radically using it for justice, is if you come to a point of realizing he gave all of his wealth, wealth of heaven, glory of God, laid it down 
so that you and I could have the wealth of his acceptance, his love, and his future. The only way that you and I will be able to be radical change transform agents is embracing this king and this kingdom and following the way of Jesus. So what does that look like? A couple applications real quick. If you're on the fringes politically, and let's be honest, those of us on the fringes, our attitude is, see, they're the problem. If you would just, and those people over here are going, see, they're the problem. You know what? Embracing this kingdom, there's a moderating influence. And you realize the issue and the enemy isn't them. The issue and the enemy is right here. The problem isn't them. You realize the problem is here because the gospel humbles me to recognize that I am a sinner saved by the grace of God. And instead of demonizing my opponents, going, you, you know what's going to happen to you? If you truly embrace the kingdom politically, you will actually be able to have coffee. Sit down and engage in heartfelt, grace-centered conversations with people who are completely different from you politically. Completely different. So those of us that are supporting Barack Obama, and those of us that are supporting John McCain, and those of us that are just kind of, I don't care, could sit down together over dinner or coffee, engage in conversations saying, what would be the kingdom thing to do? instead of demonizing and attacking. Is that possible in our church? Is that possible in our church? Yeah? Yeah? Okay. Here's the second thing. For those of us that are kind of in the center, and we're moderate, and the reason why we're there is because, A, we don't really care. We're indifferent, like whatever, whatever. Society problems. For those who are in the center, here's what the kingdom of God will do. The kingdom of God will come in saying, you can't be indifferent. You got to care. You got to care. To which we go, but I don't know how I can care. This job is the only job I'll ever have. If I speak up and lose my job, what's going to happen? Look, this thing is the only thing I'll ever have. And Jesus says, look, yes, if your perspective is this job is the only job I'll ever have, this wealth is the only wealth I'll have, this reputation is the only reputation I'll ever have, of course you're going to be afraid to risk it for the sake of the common good. But there is a greater kingdom coming called the kingdom of God. This is not the end. That's not the only job you'll ever have. That's not the only money you'll ever have. That's not the only life you'll ever have. There's a greater life to come. And it frees you. And you go, I can risk it. I can sacrifice it. I don't have to be a what if. And Jesus says, yes, you could risk it. Yes, you could sacrifice it. Yes, you can get off the dead middle and do something. Because it matters. Because it matters. If you embrace the kingdom Parties of the kingdom, you'll move from here to here, from here to here, from here to there, from here to there. (sighs) The great thing about this revolutionary is that the more you beat him down and the more you kill him and the more you suppress him, the more powerful his kingdom grows. You're talking about a king who said, the high point of my career is when I get elected. No, here's a king who said, the high point of my career is when I'm going to get executed. And he says, follow my way. Let's pray. In a moment, we are going to participate in communion. And pay very careful attention, you guys. 
communion is just as much about our covenant, our relationship, reflection of what Christ has done for us, our reflection of of the blessings and the wonder and joy of salvation, salvation by grace, blessings and wonder of that. There's an individual component. But this morning, I will remind you, I want to remind me that as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the breaking of the bread and the pouring of the wine represents the oneness, the oneness, the oneness, the oneness that characterizes the body of Christ because of what he's done. That means that those of us from radically different political persuasions come to the same table, to the same Savior, to the same God, to the same Jesus. And this morning, as you take it, I want to, look, look, and this morning as you take communion, I, I, I'm going to challenge you because if you are somebody who's had hostile thoughts, unchristlike thoughts, prideful, arrogant thoughts, or you've even spoken arrogant words, prideful words, you've even spoken things that weren't Christ edifying, this morning, before you take communion, I want you to repent and confess that sin. This morning's communion does more than just us and God. This morning's communion, you guys, reminds us of the solidarity, the oneness that we have. A group of people whose hopes don't lie in political process and engagement to change this world, but our hopes lie in the kingdom of God ushered by this dying, crucified, executed Savior. So I pray that it's been more than symbolic today. I pray that as we come, you guys, that it will be a testimony to anyone in this room of the oneness that we share in Christ. Oneness shaped and molded and founded by a common mission to advance the kingdom here on earth, not our ideological agendas. And the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and when he broke it, he gave thanks, and he said, this is my body broken for you. Whenever you take it, do it in remembrance of me. Then he took the cup. And he took the cup saying, this, this represents the blood, the blood of Christ as a new covenant that was shed for you on the cross. His body is broken, his blood is shed, not just so that we could have inner peace and go to heaven, but so that we can participate in this radical thing called the kingdom of God. And he says, join me. Join me. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.